Gospels, we read this phrase, and it is just a huge concept for Paul, and it's a huge challenge for us to live that out. Last week, the title of the message was Identity in Christ, Becoming Our True Selves. And so I delved into three accounts in the Gospels about Jesus encountering people and how he listened to what their identities were. And many of them were false. They were chasing after false identities in their life. And Jesus listened to those things. He challenged them. And then he offered them a different way. And in essence was inviting them to say, what would it be like if you no longer looked at the obvious markers of being a father, being a business person, being uh, your, your racial or gender definitions? What if you submitted those to me and actually put me at the center? It doesn't do away with those identity markers. Those will always be with us in our own unique way, but... They're put in perspective when we are in Christ and he is at the center. The Apostle John begins his gospel with a very unique way. You know that uh, the other three gospels, the synoptics of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all begin with some measure of the birth narrative of Jesus. But John takes an entirely different tact. And he uses a word that if you're a churchgoer should be very familiar to you. And even if you don't know Greek, you know this word because pastors love to throw it out there. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the word, John writes. And I simply want to point out this. The logos in Greek and Roman understanding of that time, it was simply a philosophical idea. The Logos was some divine mind or divine awareness. It was not a God. It was simply a philosophical idea. And the Greeks and the Romans, the cultured folk, loved to just talk about ideas. Very similar to our culture, where we love to talk about worldviews and how do you think about this. The Greeks and Romans were all about that. But to them, the Logos was just another idea of the divine in this world. And John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he takes that secular concept, and what does he do with it? He applies the Logos to Jesus. In the beginning was a person, and that person was The grand divine idea that every human being searches after. It is not done in classes on philosophy at the university. It isn't done on your favorite podcast. It is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is how John decides to introduce the idea of Jesus, his work, and his personhood. And so... When we proclaim the Logos, when we proclaim Jesus as the Word, we're not just entering into the worldviews of our day from a Christian perspective. That's very important. 
But if we are simply, if you're in a conversation with a friend of yours who's just is simply asking you all kinds of questions, well, why do you believe in Jesus? And it just becomes this head conversation, then we're no different than any other philosophy. But when we are able to speak about the logos, that we are not just following some philosophical idea, but that we are following a person, that changes it entirely. We are professing a living Christ, one who was raised, who ascended into heaven, and now is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. When I wake up in the morning, that's the God that I pray to. It's a person, the Logos. And so as we begin this morning, I just wanted to lay that out there before I open us in a word of prayer. As we have worshiped this morning, Jesus, in this sacred place, we again humble ourselves before your word. We realize that nothing will happen if we just wrestle with this in our mind and do not open up our heart to have it sink in one more time to understand this marvelous truth of what it means to be in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, have your way in our hearing and our eventual doing, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Question. How many of you, and I am going to ask for a raise of hands, how many of you had any, have had any connection with the youth ministry called Young Life through the years, either through in your high school experience, maybe you went to a Young Life camp, raise your hand if you would. Cool, that's great. We've got a good, a good measure of folks. Young Life has been around since the 1950s. And uh, a little fun fact that you could share at parties, Bellingham, Whatcom County was the second place in America where Young Life was established as a volunteer organization. The connection goes back to Grant Whipple at the FERS Missionary Conference Center, and he went to school at Dallas Theological Seminary with Jim Rayburn, who was the founder of Young Life. And because of their friendship, Grant had heard about what was happening in Texas, and he called up Jim and he says, how about coming to Whatcom County and helping us establish Young Life here? Well, I was in a Young Life club in high school. And later on, I got to go up to Malibu, their camp in Canada, to receive some training as a volunteer. I was like 20 years old, but I was interested in youth ministry. And during that week, the thing that impacted me the most and has still impacted me to this day is they said, when you have, and in, back then it was a living room full of teenagers, right? We would just use people's houses because churches were a little bit scary uh, back then, and they still are, for young people to come into a church building. And so they went to a neutral site, which was somebody's living room. And they said, when you stand up, it's not for the purpose of a sermon, because the so-called club talk was 10 minutes max. And they said this, this is what they trained us in. Only use encounters with Jesus from the Gospels. 
The whole of the scriptures is inspired, but in terms of the ability of a young person for the first time to hear the beginnings of what they may understand to be the gospel, drill down in the encounters with Jesus. Tell the stories of Jesus. Well, why is that so profound? I think, number one, it's because God himself gave us Jesus as God in human flesh so that we could relate. Again, we're not just trying to think of concepts of God, but he gave us Jesus as the very flesh and blood that we are so that we could see him in this world and watch him interact with people. And I've tried to implement that throughout my ministry, especially in talking to folks who are new to understanding the gospel. One of the challenges in introducing young people to Jesus, and I encountered, have encountered this through my ministry too, well, what Jesus are you talking about? Because sometimes Jesus appears to be deeply caring Often he does. We see this in his encounters with healing and with the outcasts and those on the margins. Jesus, we find him reaching out. And so that quality appears to be a great and a wonderful quality. But in the next chapter, we may find that Jesus is angry at the religious authorities. He's turning over tables in the temple. He's calling them whitewashed tombs and declaring the sin that he saw in the religious leaders. Well, who is Jesus? Is he that deeply caring person? Is he that harsh and prophetic person? And then we read in the next chapter, perhaps, uh, Jesus appears to be the wisest man who ever lived. And he's sitting in a small group of either his disciples or just when he would invite people to come closer. And he's teaching them. And he's explaining it with parables and stories that they can understand. Who doesn't want to sit at the feet of that kind of an individual? But then there's other times when Jesus can be very confusing. Because he'll answer a question with what? Another question. And you kind of scratch your head like, well, that's not what I was asking. I want an answer, not another question. And so what do we do as we try to understand ourselves, those of us who are in faith and following Christ, how do we get a holistic view of this Jesus without just highlighting individual characteristics and qualities? I know for myself, the challenge is I don't do very well in looking at another human being and having a holistic view of them. How often do you fall prey to this? You know, that guy's kind of a glass half empty guy. He's always going to be telling you, you know, the negative side. Or look out for that lady. She is moody. Or this guy is, he's the life of the party, man. You always invite him when you're going to go out. Or look out for that guy. He's a backstabber. We generalize each other, don't we? We have a tough time looking at the breadth of who we are as people. And so it shouldn't surprise us that as we try to get a holistic view of Jesus, the same thing happens. The gospel writers 
were not intent on giving us a history of Jesus chronologically. This also drives linear people nuts. It's like, well, I want a history book. I want to know, you know, here, it starts off with his birth. That's good. And then it just goes all haywire all over the place. And so theologians through the history have tried to put the synoptics together, right? And, and fortunately, they're generally humble about it and saying, we think this is maybe the way it went. But the true goal should not be to put Jesus in some chronological order. The gospel writers give us what I call snapshots that eventually become part of a scrapbook. And when we leave through the scrapbook, we see his compassion, we see his wise teaching, we see his prophetic side, we see his confusing side at times in how he deals with people. But the, pers- the purpose, again, is to be able to see Jesus in all of who he is. And so the text that I've chosen this morning is really just basically one verse. It also comes from that first gospel of John in verse 14. You'd put it up there. The word became flesh. There's the logos again. He became a person, not an idea. He made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And here's your million-dollar phrase for this morning, full of grace and truth. At the beginning of this message today, I want you to, set, to, to think about the best way to find a holistic view of Jesus is to think of him with these two bookends, full of grace and full of truth, full of truth and full of grace. These are two complementary, not contradictory characteristics. As human beings, we have a tough time holding these together. But in Jesus, we find them perfectly connected. I like to say it this way, if you'd put up the next phrase. Jesus was generous in his compassion. That's the gracious side of him. But he was also gracious in his convictions, which is the truthful side. And I would submit to you that grid is a great one to look at any of the encounters of Jesus with people. He may start out by listening to where they were at. And often he did that. And then he would speak truth into their life and invite them to follow the grace that could allow them to now live in Jesus Christ. He was gracious, excuse me, generous in his compassion and gracious in his convictions. So what does truth bring to our understanding of Jesus? Let's go ahead and separate them for a minute. Let's talk about truth. What does that tell us about our understanding of Jesus? Well, first of all, Jesus refused to compromise his message even when he knew he would lose followers as a result. 
Who, if you're starting a business, wants to alienate potential customers? In America right now, major corporations are bending over backwards not to offend anybody. And we know all of the virtue signaling that we call it now. We don't know if that organization really believes what they're putting out there, but they certainly don't want to alienate any of their possible customers. Well, Jesus was the worst person to start a new religion because he didn't care about that. He knew his message would divide. He was direct and to the point. He said, there is right living that will lead you to a fruitful life. And there is wrong behavior and sin that will be an anchor and detriment to your soul. And he boldly proclaimed that. He spoke words that people needed to hear even as they mocked him to his face and rejected his teaching as the, it's recorded in the Gospels that they walked away. And remember the time when Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, well, are you going to go too? I guess I'm down to the very bare bones because everybody that day had walked away. Not a very effective evangelistic ministry, apparently. And finally, truth says, Jesus declared the truth about himself to the point of knowing that it would lead to his death. And his disciples tried to talk him out of it. But he said, this is the will of the Father. He knew truth that well. However, there are challenges to receiving God's truth. It's easier to preach it than it is to actually try and receive and live it. God's truth can often seem unyielding and non-negotiable. Just as I said, people just said, well, I'm out. That is too hard. Go find somebody else that'll follow you. We cannot change the principles that God has put into the the natural world of gravity our need for sleep and for food. These are non-negotiables that are all necessary. In fact, in Galatians, it says, God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. And any parent knows you you can preach that all day long to your kids, but it's only until they reap what they have sown that they finally understand that this is an inviolable principle God has put in the world. If we violate truth, there are consequences, both short-term and ultimately when God will judge every human being who has lived on this planet. And truth can produce pain when we collide with it. When truth exposes my sin and I want to somehow negotiate with God or act as if I can silently hide it from him, I have come up against the unyielding nature of truth. And as a broken human being, I want to hide, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. So in general, we can say that God's truth distinguishes the light from the darkness It distinguishes 
truthful actions from our sinful actions. And ultimately, truth is all about how God created human beings to be truly human in our lives and to flourish. Truth is about love, ultimately. It's not about judgment. So there's truth. Again, we're artificially separating these. Now let's look at the grace side of what the Apostle John says about our Lord. What does grace bring to our understanding of Jesus? As you know, grace is about receiving all that God has provided. We cannot earn it. I've heard that my whole life, and I still marvel at the fact that I try to earn it. I want to do things to take it back and say, no, I got a part in this, Jesus. Your grace is not 100% free. I got to earn a little bit of it, so let me, let me do my part. That's our human nature, and yet true grace is unmerited, unearned, undeserved, and all the religions in the world, except the Christian faith, are based on human merit. You can test this in any class or any book on any other world religion. There is a large measure of human merit that underlies those religions. Because we like that. We like to have skin in the game. We want to say, I did something And the grace of Jesus Christ is this unique part of the character of God that says, you can't do it. And only when you realize you can't do anything about it will you really fully understand my grace. The second thing in regards to grace is like a spoiled child in a wealthy family we can assume that this grace will always be there for us. We can choose to live however we want, like the prodigal did. And the grace of a loving father and mother is always going to be there for us. We'll always be forgiven. We'll always be loved. The money will always be there to bail us out of whatever problem we get into. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great theologian that stood up, one of the few Christians that stood up against Adolf Hitler, prior to World War II, he called that cheap grace. It was cheap because it's human. It's not based on that undeserved grace that only God himself can offer. And so people love the idea of grace in our world today but they want it apart from Jesus. I see grace all over the place in advertisings. I hear it from non-Christian people. Their understanding of grace is really based on the scriptural definition, but they want it without Jesus. We also know we live in a postmodern world where truth has also been rejected. There is no such thing as absolute truth. And so culturally, 
We've rejected the truth piece, but we say, give me grace based on nothing. And again, it's interesting as I've observed this, especially over my lifetime. Grace is highlighted in our culture because who doesn't want to be loving and understanding towards everybody? All love is love. Can't we all just get along? They want the heart of the gospel of grace, but they want it without Jesus. When grace is divorced from Jesus, we look to ourselves to be able to offer it. And please hear me, I say this with great humility But there's no amount of t-shirt slogans that say, be kind, or posters that are put up in our schools that say, be tolerant, or be equitable, or desire justice. Those are t-shirt slogans that are dependent on our human ability to offer those things if we divorce grace from Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm so passionate about John 1.14. Because I think in this cultural moment that we live, this is our best opportunity to share the gospel in a way that people have a chance to understand why those two things cannot be separated. Jesus himself was both and. He was not either or. He was as committed to the truth as he was to offering grace. Throughout his ministry, we see him committed to both a passion for telling the truth, but also demonstrating grace to all people. He showed that these two together must stay linked because ultimately what they describe is the very love of God the Father. This is a phrase that I've been using probably over the last 20 years as I've talked especially to non-believing people. Jesus accepted every human being where they are at without precondition. In the encounters in the gospel, Jesus never said, whoa, 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 go to the temple first, offer a sacrifice, get yourself together, then come back and we'll talk. Jesus met them where they were at, listened to their story, but he did not leave any person in that same place. Full acceptance, but if that individual was going to hang around and continue to follow Jesus, they would not be left in the same place that Jesus found them. He started with his own disciples, the impetuous Peter. I did a whole sermon series one time on the gospel accounts of Peter and all of his ups and downs and the post-resurrection Peter because we get a window in his own letter in 1st and 2nd Peter as to what happened to him. What a great contrast of Jesus accepting the impetuous Peter, in fact, calling him into his inner circle and then saying, here's where you get to go. 
if you continue to follow after me. As I mentioned last week, he took the political zealot Simon and he said, when your political hopes are dashed because I am not overturning the Roman government in the way that you want, you're going to find true life because now you're going to see the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of man. And then we also looked at the rich young ruler, we often call him. I call him the rich young materialist. Jesus accepts him right where he's at. And then he says, hey, here's an idea. Why don't you sell what you have and give the proceeds to the poor? Truth and grace. A great quote from one of my favorite contemporary authors, Reverend Tim Keller, he wrote this, Jesus comes to every individual in every culture and offers to fulfill their deepest desires and their best aspirations. But in the same stroke, he also fundamentally challenges their beliefs and their practices. He tells them they've been going about seeking the fulfillment of those desires in profoundly wrong ways. He offers them all that they want, meaning and satisfaction, freedom, identity, hope, and justice. But he calls them to repent and seek their all in him. One of the great illustrations of grace and truth is in the parable of the prodigal son. And as many of you know, theologians have done a better job of now renaming that parable. It's not just about the prodigal. It's about the elder brother who sat in judgment and was the good boy that stayed home and did everything right. Jesus is talking about both of them. The rebellious young brother and the self-righteous truth-filled older brother. And Keller wrote a book on this that I also did a sermon series in my own church. And what we discovered as a congregation is pretty much we had a half of us leaning towards the prodigal and half of us were leaning towards the elder brother. I think that's true of most human personalities. We're going to say, cheer on the prodigal. Or cheer on the elder because he was the good guy that stayed home. It's a balancing act. God in his wisdom has given us freedom. And we can err on one side and become very strong in our truth. We can also become very strong in grace and run the gamut of it being a pendulum swing rather than holding the two together. Any parent with children knows this tension, don't we? You come into a room, you see a broken vase on the floor, and you just see two kids in front of it. You get to be Solomon. You get to make the wisest choice of all time. Well, no, you don't. You have no idea what happened. And your first thought is, am I going to bring the hammer on this thing? because that was my favorite vase and you made a mess of the carpet? Or am I going to just get on a knee and give them both hugs? Don't care how it happened. 
Neither's right, neither's wrong. But that's the dilemma that we all know. There's even a word for it over the last 50 years in parenting. It's called what? Tough love. Culture has tried to bring those two things together by saying sometimes toughness is needed, sometimes love, sometimes both. And so we try to blend the two of them. As a pastor, I'm sure any pastor would relate to this, but I have preached a particular sermon, and afterwards, over the coming days, I would receive emails. I love hearing whether anything I've said lands with my congregation, but it was always interesting to me, same sermon, the first email would be something like this, well, pastor, uh, thank you for your sermon, but I'm wondering why you're so easy on sin. Sin is rampant in our church. It's rampant in the culture. You need to be more truthful about the gospel and that God has standards and that we are sinners. Same sermon, same day after, I get an email that says this. Pastor, why are you always so angry and talking about God's disdain for sin? Why are you such a hard-nosed guy? Where is the grace? We need to hear the love of God, and why are you so harsh all the time? And this is where pastors get schizophrenic. I, I go back to my notes, and I say, well, okay, where, well, uh, what was I saying? Where did I go off? How did they? And I've learned, not that I don't prayerfully look at how I present the gospel, but I have to say, Sometimes it was the prodigal son that needed to hear that word, and sometimes it was the elder brother. They both heard the same message of God, and they both arrived at different conclusions. The only place we can find both grace and truth demonstrated in perfect unity is in our Lord. I wish I had this ability. I have honestly prayed for it because the number of situations in my ministry as well as just in my family life, I'm like, God, I don't know what, I don't know what is appropriate here. Which one do I bring in? But grace is not fully God's grace without his truth. And truth is not fully God's truth without his grace. And here's the fun part for me in terms of the Gospel of John because John himself summarizes it two verses later. First chapter, verses 16 and 18. Out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of the grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. And here's that phrase, he loves And mentioned in verse 14, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And brothers and sisters of Northwest Baptist, I would submit to you as a fellow sojourner with Jesus, that while we will never reach a place of holding on to grace and truth, 
We have one who we can model ourselves after. And when we fall and when we fail and when we go on one side or the other and we make a mistake and it hurts a relationship, on and on I could go, I still come back to saying, if it wasn't humanly possible, Jesus never would have demonstrated it to us and said that the same was possible through our lives. The only illustration I could come up with was a coin. Because the heads and the tails of a coin cannot be separated. And so when I think about my own life, and I'm praying about places where grace or truth is needed, I reach in my pocket, even though nobody carries coins anymore. But if you do, look at that coin and realize there is no way to separate those two things. And in my pocket, I just say, thank you, God, that because of my belief that your Holy Spirit is at work, that I can continue on this, and here's the bad news, it's a lifetime pursuit. It isn't a come to the altar on one day and just saying, give me all. I have prayed that so many times. God, just knock me over with this stuff. But in his wisdom, he says this is line upon line, precept upon precept. You're my son. I'm inviting you every time you fail to take my hand again because you can do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray for discernment in the difficult situations that you face where you're not sure which is the best, but also learn to live each day in the awareness that every encounter you have is going to be seasoned with grace and with truth. My prayer for you is that like Jesus, we would be generous in our compassion And we would also be gracious in our convictions. Let me pray for all of us. Jesus, on this Sunday morning where we are highlighting fathers and the role that you have given us to play in our families, we are humbled because we we know this difficulty. We know it in our marriages. We know it in our relationships with our children. We know it, I know it in my relationship with my own parents. And so we pause to just acknowledge that while we understand that the only by the Holy Spirit and only by the way that you treat us can we come anywhere close to understanding the weight of these truths that we have discussed this morning. We once again humble ourselves under your word and ask for your glorious work of transforming us into the very image of the Logos. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.